Amen. Uh, good morning, everybody. You have your Bible with you today? If you do, you need to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. If you don't, you need to grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you. Open it up to Hebrews chapter 3 so you can follow along as we study God's Word. If you don't have a Bible at all, I want you to take that one home and consider it our gift to you. And don't just consider it a gift, but use that gift. Read it, study it, meditate on it, satisfy your heart in God's Word. Last week, as we continued on our study of Hebrews, we came to a section that is really all about application. We need to remember that the author of Hebrews is swinging back and forth between instruction and application. He's going to give exposition. He's going to teach us about who Christ is and what he has done. And then he's going to give us some uh, exhortation, some call to action. And uh, that call to action is always going to be based on the instruction. So that's the pattern that we're getting here, back and forth. And here we are in a section of application. The author last week called us to consider Jesus, to fix our minds on Jesus. And really, this is the main exhortation of the whole book of Hebrews. The entire point that the author is trying to get at is we want to look at Jesus. We want to see Jesus clearly and we want to be satisfied in Christ. He should be the center of our attention at all times. And the sad truth is many of us only consider Jesus. We only fix our minds on Jesus when we come in this building and we gather with this group of people. And sometimes it's even hard to do it then. Sometimes it's even a struggle to do it then. And so we talked about if we are going to spend our lives, if day in and day out our minds are going to be fixed on Jesus, there are some things that we need to have in our lives. And first is desire. We need to have a desire for Jesus if we're going to fix our minds on him. And Joe preached Wednesday night about the family, and it was powerful. And one of the things that stood out to me is he said, we don't make our decisions from day to day necessarily based on right and wrong. That's not usually our guiding force. Usually our guiding force is, what do we love most? When I go to a restaurant and I decide what I'm going to eat, it's not always based on what's right or wrong. It's what I want. It's what I desire. It's what I love most. And I want in my life to love Jesus more than anything. I want to have a desire for him that supersedes and exceeds and eclipses every other desire that I have. And then I'll fix my mind on him regularly. We also need concentration to go along with that desire. We need focus. We need discipline. Like an athlete disciplines his body for a purpose, for a sport, for an event. We need discipline in our spiritual lives. And we need to give it time. We need to designate. We need to um, allow for and set aside time for spiritual discipline, for fixing our minds on Jesus. And we have time. We all have time. We just waste too much of it. So what we talked about last week. This week we're going to continue on with this same train of thought and application. Specifically, what the author is going to do today is he's going to flesh out in a little more detail the warning that he introduced last week in verse 6 of chapter 3 when he said, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That's a big if there. And we're going to see more today what that if means. Now listen to me clearly. I believe that what we're going to see today and what we're going to hear today is a message and a warning that is desperately needed. And I want to be careful that my tone of voice and even my expression of face is fitting with the text today. The tone of the text is urgent. It is important. It is heavy and weighty. 
So I want my tone to match that. I want to have the attitude of great preachers like Baxter and Ravenhill who said, I preached as never sure, never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. There's a lot at stake here today. And I want to treat it that way. And it's hard, especially on this day. I'm struggling with this today because the tone of the text today is so heavy. It's so weighty. It's so serious. And I want to go there and I want to be there. And then we're going to dismiss from this room. We're going to go to the park for a picnic. And I don't know if I can shift gears that quickly. I don't know if I can go from this text to throwing a Frisbee with somebody uh, later on today. But we're going to try. And so here's, here's the lesson that I'm taking away from today. Uh, there's a time for seriousness and there's a time for fun, joking, and laughter. There's a time for hard study and there's a time for frisbee throwing. And for the next hour, it's hard. So let's, let's be there. Let's, let's do that for the next hour. And then we'll try to shift gears and throw the frisbee after that. But if you're already in frisbee mode, you, you're going to be way out of place for the next hour. Like, if you're already in picnic mode, the next hour is going to be fairly difficult for you. This text is, is it's so pertinent to our lives today. There are so many people, maybe even gathered in this room today, who are absolutely making the same mistake the children of Israel made after the Exodus. Absolutely living the same life the children of Israel led, and therefore did not enter the promised land. An entire generation fell in the wilderness. And that's my fear it's my fear for many, maybe even in here today. So let's read God's word. Let's treat it with the seriousness it deserves, starting in chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren that there is not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me. For who provoked Him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. God, help us. to be serious. Help us to feel the weight of your word over the next few minutes and respond properly to it for the rest of our lives. God, we want to take care. We want to watch our hearts. 
that they would not become unbelieving. We want to learn from the lessons you're trying to teach us from the Exodus and an entire generation that did not enter the promised land because of unbelief. God, give us ears to hear. Ears to hear what you want to say to us today in your word. And help us respond properly in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start in verse 7. I wanted to give you verse 6 because it is really the introduction of this whole warning. But verse 7 is really the heart of what we're going to study today. Notice he starts out by saying, therefore. And I don't want to necessarily point that out every time it comes up. But you, you need to see how this is building in Hebrews All of what he's about to say is connected to what he has already said. Hebrews is much like a symphony. The author adding layer upon layer so the sound gets richer and fuller all the time. Specifically, this verse and what follows it is linked to verse 6 and the implicit warning about being his house if we hold fast. If we hold fast. Notice what he says next after he says, Therefore, he says, Just as the Holy Spirit says... Now, I think this is a really interesting way to introduce an extended Old Testament quotation. This is Psalm 95 that he's about to introduce. Psalm 95, by the way, has a similar structure as Hebrews, where it starts out with exaltation, and then from that exaltation gets to a point of application and warning, specifically warning. So there's a a real parallel between Psalm 95 and uh, Hebrews. But I want you to notice that he attributes... The words he's about to share from Psalm 95 to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, the psalmist says. He doesn't say, but David says. He says, the Holy Spirit says this. And what I want you to learn is that when we read the Bible, no matter which man penned a particular phrase or chapter or book, when we read the Bible, we are reading God's word. This is is his word. It's not just David, it's not just the author of Hebrews, it's not just Paul, it's God speaking, and we need to treat it that way. Second thing I want you to see here is the tense of the verb. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit said. He says the Holy Spirit says to us today. In other words, the lesson is when we read the Bible, we are not just reading an ancient account. We are reading a living and active word. The living and active word of God that is timeless and it is timely. Remember I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 a minute ago. And three times in that passage Paul says these things were written down for your instruction. They weren't written down so that those people would have uh, an account of what had happened. It was written down so that we would learn from those lessons. So that we would learn from their mistakes. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4 is going to say this in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So even in the introduction of this quote from Psalm 95, we learn that this is God's word. And this is God's word for us today. So we don't step back from this and say, oh, that's, that's good about those people in the Exodus. Or we don't step back and say, oh, that's good for those people in the first century. We, we lean in and we see this as God's word for us today. Make sense? And then he quotes from Psalm 95 when he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where their fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation 
and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways and I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. This is part of why we did 12 weeks of Old Testament overview a few months ago. We need to be familiar with the Old Testament narrative. We need to be familiar with the Old Testament story. And make no mistake, the people that received this letter initially, they were familiar with this story. They knew exactly what the author was talking about when he quoted Psalm 95. In fact, they would have been very familiar with Psalm 95 itself. I read several scholars that said that in the synagogue gatherings... The weekly synagogue gatherings in the first century, the opening verse of Psalm 95 was read at the beginning of every service. So this is, he's speaking a word to these people that they would have been intimately familiar with, not just the psalm, but the story that it represents. But we are often not familiar with those stories. And that's why we did Old Testament overview for a while. And that's why we need to read not just the New Testament, not just the Gospels and the Epistles. We need to read the whole Bible. This is all God's story of redemption. So here, the author is going to use the negative example of the nation of Israel during the time of Exodus to warn the church against the danger of starting well, but not finishing. They started well, but they didn't finish and they turned away. Last week, he used Moses, a character they were familiar with, as a positive example of faithfulness. This week, he will use the nation as a negative example of faithlessness. George Guthrie says this, the author of Hebrews would love for the people who read this word to learn from the mistakes of the past, to spare them some serious trouble. And he goes on and adds, and that goes for us as well as the original readers. We want to read the story of the Exodus and learn from those mistakes and not continue to repeat them. So we want to give a quick review. I'll spend a minute and give you a quick review of the story of Exodus in case you're not familiar with it. This is going to be like, uh, we used to call them Cliff's Notes. I think you guys call them spark notes now. This is like spark notes version of the Exodus story, right? God's people were in Exodus, and they were, I mean, they were in Egypt. Wow. They were in Egypt, and uh, they were also in Exodus. That's the book that tells the story. Um, they were in Egypt, and they were there as slaves. Uh, some events happened, and they became slaves, and they were being oppressed. And a new king raised up. A uh, new king, uh, Pharaoh, they called him, uh, came to power, and he didn't remember he didn't remember how they had gotten there. He didn't remember how good they had been to the people. And he came to fear the people of God. He, he came to be very afraid of them because they were so many. And he thought if they were to turn against us, they would surely destroy us. And so that new Pharaoh began to oppress the children of God even more strenuously. He made their labor more difficult. In fact, he even tried to kill all their male children. If you read in Exodus, you'll read this terrifying account about how he tried to kill all the boy babies. But God, in the midst of all of that, miraculously spared this one little baby. His name was Moses. And eventually, the people of God begin to cry out to God for salvation. They begin to cry out to God for deliverance. And that one little baby that he had spared in the midst of that whole process, Moses, God calls him out to lead the people out of Egypt. But it's not necessarily Moses that's doing a great thing in the Exodus. It's God who's doing a great thing. And the scripture says over and over that God brought them out by his mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with signs and wonders and miracles that we often call plagues, all of these incredible things, God brings his people out of slavery, out of oppression, 
out of bondage, and he's going to take them to their own land, to a promised land, he calls it, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. But the journey to get there is not an easy one, and they come immediately to a problem, a problem called the Red Sea. Because once they had gotten out of Egypt, Pharaoh and his army started to come after them, and they were going to attack them. And they get to the sea, and they say, what are we going to do? And what's God do? He parts the waters of the sea so that all of his people cross on dry land. Miracle after miracle, wonder after wonder. God brings his people out and they start off strong. But it doesn't take long before they start grumbling and they start complaining, right? Oh, we don't have enough water. Oh, we don't have enough food. Oh, Moses, what would you do? Bring us out here to die? And yet even in their grumbling and complaining, God provides for them. And he takes care of them. And he sustains them. He's patient with them, right? And then he brings them almost to the promised land. And he shows it to them. And if you remember this story, some spies go in and they spy out the land. Twelve of them go in. And they come back and they say, oh yeah, it is amazing. It's an amazing land. In fact, they're carrying some grapes. You remember that part? They they pick some grapes and they're so big. The cluster of grapes is so big, two men have to carry it on a pole to go back. And they say it is great. But ten of them say, but we can't go because giants live there. And we don't stand a chance against them. We look like grasshoppers in their sight. We don't stand a chance. But two of them, named Joshua and Caleb, said, No, no, no. The Lord is with us. He has promised this land to us. Let's go. He will give it. He has already given it to us. But the ten said, No, 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 we can't. And the people said, We're going with the ten. And we're not going to go in. And God said, Because of that lack of faith, because of that lack of faith, that entire generation of adults did not go into the promised land. They wandered around in the desert for 40 years until every single one of the adults of that generation died and their bodies were scattered out across the wilderness. Well, it's not exactly true. Two of those adults got to go into the promised land. Guess which two? Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because they had faith. They trusted God. They believed in him. The others did not and they perished in the wilderness. So this is a picture. This is a picture of a good start but no finish. It's a good start, but no finish. They lacked faith, and they didn't trust God, and consequently they perished before they got to the promised land. And what I want you to see is that the picture in the warning in chapter 3 is a bit more intense than the warning in chapter 2. In chapter 2, the warning was to people who are just kind of carelessly, mindlessly, because of lack of attention, drifting away. The picture in chapter 3 is not careless and mindless. It's aggressive. It's high-handed rebellion against God. It's saying, we see the land that you've promised to give us. We see what you have done in the past. We see what you are going to do in the future. But we don't want it. We want to go back. That's what they say over and over again. We want to go back to Egypt, where we, we at least had food back there. Does that sound a little bit familiar to the Hebrews' context? group of people wanting to go back to the old life that didn't provide any real freedom. So the situation here is a bit more aggressive as the people seek high-handed rebellion against God. What we need to learn is that there's a potential, a potential and terrifying parallel between the generation whose bodies are scattered all over the wilderness and the church that got this letter initially. That they would start well but they would turn out to not believe God at all, and they would perish. And there's a potential and terrifying parallel between the generation whose bodies are scattered all over the wilderness and us today. 
This is a word for us today, a word of warning. They started out great. They saw incredible things. They followed God. He took care of them. But in the end, when things got tough, they turned away from him and they did not trust him. And I fear that there are many who are in that same boat today. Started out great, but when things got tough, they didn't trust him. I'll tell you a story about a time in my life when I started out great and didn't finish well. First time I ran a marathon, Chicago, 2010, October 10th, 2010. It was an amazing day. 40,000 people gathered together at the start line of this marathon. U2's uh, It's a Beautiful Day was blaring from the loudspeakers. Adrenaline was pumping. Everyone was excited. They fire the gun, and here we go. And for the first half of that race, I was moving. It was fantastic. In fact, I got to the halfway point of that marathon faster than I had ever ran that distance before in my life, and I felt great. I got to the halfway point and thought, this is going to be the greatest day ever. I'm going to shatter any goals that I had. This is going to go great. So 13 miles in, I'm feeling good, and I'm running fast. 15 miles in, I still feel great. I'm having a great start to a great day. And there's a little boy on the left side of the road with a bundle of freezer pops. And I thought, yes! That sounds incredible. Cold, sweet, refreshing, so I grabbed one of those freezer pops from that boy, and I felt great as I ate that freezer pop, and by mile 17, I could not walk. Every muscle in my body started to cramp. I was on the way to record-setting run, and I almost got beat by Oprah. (laughs) Literally. She almost beat me. I started out great. That's not what I remember of that day. And that's not what is in the record book from that day. What's in the record book is a terrible day. And what's in my memory is a terrible day of huge mistake after huge mistake. I think there's some parallel here with what's going on in Exodus, what's potentially going on with the people Hebrews was written to, and what's potentially going on with some of us. Some of us have started well. But we are not finishing. R. Kent Hughes, another scholar, says, The grand and terrible lesson of Israel's history is that it is possible to begin well and end poorly. So he brings up this whole picture of the Exodus, how they came out and they started well, but they didn't finish. And then he gives this application. Look at verse 12. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He seems to say that's what happened with them. An evil, unbelieving heart that fell away from the living God and they died in the wilderness and didn't make it to the promised land. He says, see to it, watch out, take care that that doesn't happen with you. This word, take care, watch out, look out, it's the first imperative of the day. It's the first call to action in this section. And we must take care. Take care of what? Take care of our hearts. I want you to notice in the text the importance of the heart in all of this. In fact, it may be a good exercise later on this afternoon to start in verse 6 and work through the end of chapter 3 and circle or highlight somehow every time the word heart is used in that text. Because it seems that the big problem in Exodus was not the whining, it was not the complaining, No, rather all of these sinful actions flowed out of a hardened and unbelieving heart. R. Kent Hughes says, 
Thus we understand that that pathology of a hard heart originated in unbelief that spawned a hardened contempt. And as we shall see, a hardness that works out in sinful disobedience. Warren Wiersbe says it more simply, as he always does. The heart of every problem is a problem in the heart. The heart of every problem is a problem in the heart. Was it a problem of their bellies in the Exodus? That they were just too hungry? Was it a problem of their feet? That they were just too tired? No, it was a problem of their hearts. They had hardened, unbelieving hearts. And that came out in sinfulness. Therefore, we need to look out for our hearts. We need to make sure that our hearts aren't headed in the same direction that their hearts headed. And one of the ways we look out for our hearts is we examine our behavior. Jesus teaches over and over and over again that the problem with mankind is not their behavior. It's their hearts. And that the behavior only flows from what's inside. James says this, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and be filled and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Verse 17 is the summary. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. In other words, the principle is you can tell a lot about a person's heart by the way they live. But make no mistake, the problem and the issue is not in how they live. It's in their hearts. It's the unbelief in the heart that leads to sinful behavior. And a lifestyle of sinful behavior is proof of the unbelieving heart. I want you to see that there's a link between unbelief and disobedience. There's a link between unbelief and disobedience. And if that is true, there is also a link between belief and obedience. That those who do not believe disobey. And those who do believe obey. I think this is consistent with Jesus' ministry, Jesus' teachings on the earth. So the question for me and the question for you is, does my life look... Like the wilderness generation? Did I come out of bondage? Did I come out of slavery with a great start and then whine and complain? Moan and cry? Want to go back? Not trust the Lord? Does my life look like the wilderness generation? That despite all the incredible provisions of God, I murmur and complain and walk away from Him. In fact, what exactly does he mean in the text when he says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. What does that mean, fall away from the living God? We're going to talk about that more in a little bit when we talk about perseverance in verse 14. I want to be clear, though, that I do not think for one minute that he is talking about trusting, that he is talking about faith, True faith that saves. I don't think for a minute he is talking about having salvation, truly having salvation, and then losing it. I think what he's talking about here is a whole scenario that's a description of what it looks like when it's finally manifested that a person didn't have faith in the first place. That they didn't trust God originally in the first place, and that comes out in their behavior. That comes out the hard, unbelieving heart is demonstrated, manifested, In the behavior. John Piper says it like this. In other words, you can fall away from God to the degree that you have come close to the work of God. 
The love of his people, the light of his word, the privilege of prayer, the moral force of his example, the gifts and miracles of the spirit, the blessing of his providence, and the daily revelation of sun and rain. It is possible, listen, it is possible to taste of these things, to be deeply affected by them, and to be lost in unbelief. Because Jesus Christ himself is not your heart's delight and hope and confidence and reward. Jesus says much the same in chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So listen, this is a real warning. This is not some kind of hypothetical thing that can't really happen. This is a real warning. Maybe our lives are manifesting that we don't believe in Jesus, that we don't trust God. Maybe we had some kind of start with him. Maybe we had some kind of taste of him, but we haven't really trusted, and therefore our lives are demonstrating that we don't really trust him. So watch out. Look at your heart. We showed a text in the service earlier that says, examine yourself, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. To see if you are really in the faith, if Christ is really in you, lest you fail the test. You don't want to fail that test, right? You don't want to fail that test like that generation did and fell in the wilderness. So he says, first, in light of all of this, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Second application, verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. N.T. Wright calls this verse the antidote to apostasy. What is apostasy? It's turning away from God. He says this verse is the antidote. Notice, notice the regularity of the encouragement that is needed. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. It's not a once in a while warning. It's not a once in a while encouragement. It's not a once in a while engagement. It's daily engagement. One scholar says the warning addressed to early Christians still applies today. Believers should be vigilant so that unbelief does not begin to invade our hearts. One of the marks of the church should be daily mutual encouragement so that we are not hardened by sin. Such encouragement means believers know one another and share struggles. Perseverance until the end is necessary for salvation. When we read about the wilderness generation, we see what happens to those who disbelieve and disobey. They failed to enter God's earthly rest. How much more terrible is it to fail to enter the heavenly rest? So the encouragement that we're to give one another is to be regular encouragement, daily encouragement. This is part of how we make sure that we don't fall away. It's how we, part of how we make sure that we cling to Jesus even when life gets hard is we encourage one another regularly. The word that's used here for encourage is a strong word. In fact, it's the same, same root word for the Holy Spirit's role. As our helper, our encourager, our advocate, our friend. We are to be that for each other as well. A helper, encourager, advocate, and friend. One scholar asked this question. He said, how different would the Exodus story be if instead of complaining to one another about lack of food and lack of water, the people of God encouraged one another when times got hard? Man, that hits home, doesn't it? How different would our lives be if when we got together, rather than complain about everything that's going on in our lives, we encouraged one another? 
And what if we were doing that not just once a week or once a month? You know, you know over half the people who are involved here at First Baptist Church are here less than 75% of the time. It's one of the things we learned from our statistical studies. Over half the people are seeing people less than three out of four weeks. This is not enough encouragement. <laughs> that is not enough engagement with each other to make sure that we don't fall away, to make sure that we hold fast to the end. We need to encourage one another regularly. Verse 14 may be the most important part of the whole text, though. Look what it says. After giving these two bits of application, when he says, take care of your hearts and encourage one another, he goes back to the warning, back to the heaviness of the warning in verse 14 when he says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. I want you to notice the language here. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. We have become if we hold fast. I like that Piper explains here that he is talking about being a Christian, not becoming a Christian. It doesn't say we will become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. It's not about becoming a Christian. It's about being a Christian. It's the same idea back in verse 6 when he says, whose house we are, if, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So perseverance, endurance, finishing are proof of the start. Are the proof of the start. If you start and do not finish, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know what you get in a race when you start and do not finish? You don't get a time. You don't get a number. You get letters. D-N-F. Did not finish. For all the world to see, I am really afraid that there are many people affiliated with this church that if the finish line came today, you get a DNF. Not holding fast, not trusting, not believing. He says, You have become partakers of Christ if you hold fast to the end. In other words, perseverance, endurance, finishing are the proof of the start. And if there's no finish, there was no start. John MacArthur says it like this, if we really believe the gospel, if we have committed our life to Jesus Christ, then at the end of the day, at the end of the year, at the end of our lives, our commitment will stand. The greatest proof of salvation is the continuance in the Christian life. The true believer stays with Christ. When someone departs from the gospel, backs away from the faith, we can only conclude that this person never believed. Staying with the Lord marks the difference between possession and profession. Oh, man. There is a huge difference between possession and profession. Profession is the start, and starting is easy. Finishing is proof. Finishing is proof of possession. We need to consider whether this faith that we profess is a faith that we actually possess. George Guthrie says it like this, For the author of Hebrews, those drifting away from God with hearts calloused by sin are in serious trouble. Hebrews 3.6, Hebrews 3.14 suggest that assurance of salvation, assurance that we have partaken of the grace of God, in part depends on the vitality of one's ongoing relationship with Christ and with the church. This is not to suggest that one earns salvation through faithfulness, but that the faithfulness is evidence of one's salvation. It may be 
It may be that a drifter truly has a relationship with Christ and will come around again to Christian commitment. Listen to this sentence. Yet the drifter in a state of drifting has no assurance of his or her right standing before God since God's grace is not being manifested in that person's life. Perseverance is evidence and proof that you belong to the family of God. Perseverance, endurance, is evidence of true salvation. This is the problem with the wilderness generation. They had a great start, but they didn't persevere. They had a great start, but it didn't last. And they did not get to the promised land because of unbelief. Listen to me clearly. How many people do you know that are in that exact same situation today? They had a great start, and you remember it well. And maybe this is not about some other person. Maybe this is about you today. Had a great start, but have walked away since then. What do we say? What do we say in that situation? Do we say, oh, no worries. I remember your start. I remember 20 years ago. I remember 20 years ago when you walked the aisle and prayed the prayer. I remember when you went up into the baptistry and they dunked you. I remember how you got involved in youth group and Sunday school and went on mission trips. I remember your start. Don't worry that the last 15 years haven't shown any evidence of salvation. You don't need to worry that the last 15 years look just like the world. Don't worry that for the last 15 years you have lived like a heathen because I remember your start. And you'll get to the promised land because of the start. Is that what we should say? That is often what we do say. And that makes us feel better. And we're trying to make them feel better. But we may be giving assurance to people who should not have assurance. Would it be better in that situation to say, Look out! Wake up! Repent! Because this life, this life is not what the Christian life looks like. This life that you are living is not what it looks like to follow Christ. Because those who are partakers of Christ hold fast to Jesus. Those who are partakers of Christ, those who are part of His family, hold fast to Him. Those who are truly part of His house Live like it, and you're not doing any of that right now. Maybe that would be the more loving thing to say to someone. That's hard to do, though, isn't it? Wouldn't it be better just to say, you know what, I know you're going through a hard time, but don't worry about it because you made a good start. An entire generation, their bodies are scattered all over the wilderness. They made a good start, and they did not enter the promised land. And that picture is going to be the key picture moving on in Hebrews for the next several weeks. The picture of bodies scattered in the wilderness. Why? Because they did not believe. How do we know they did not believe? They did not enter the promised land. They did not continue to trust God. They manifested that unbelief by disobedience, rebellion, and sin. And I want us to consider, is my life marked by disobedience, rebellion, and sin? Or is my life marked by holding fast to Jesus? Because those who are partakers of Christ hold fast to Christ. Three applications are four today, and then we're done. Number one. This is God's word. This is God's word for us here today. God's word is authoritative, and therefore we must pay attention to it. We must submit ourselves to God's word. We must heed the warnings that he gives us, and we must do what he says. It is never our place to say, 
disagree. Disagree, God. Those people did not fall in the wilderness. Those people did not lack faith. Those people did not rebel against you. Disagree. It is never our place to say, hmm, pass. We don't get to do that with God's word. It is authoritative and we must submit to it. So we need to ask ourselves these questions. We need to consider, take care, look at our hearts. We need to look at our brothers and sisters and encourage them. In fact, those are the next two applications. Number one, submit yourself to God's word. Number two, take care of your heart. Look at your heart. This is the individual element of the call to action. This is your responsibility. Take care that there's no unbelieving hard heart in you like there was in the wilderness generation. Spend some time today evaluating your life, your heart. Is it believing or unbelieving? Does it look like faithful Moses last week or does it look like rebellious wilderness generation this week? We need to deal with that. We need to ask ourselves that question. And we need to take care of our hearts. Third application is we need to encourage one another. This is the corporate element of the call to action. This means if we're going to encourage one another, it means we're going to have to share our lives with each other. It means at the very least we're going to have to see each other once in a while and talk to each other more than we do now. If we are truly going to guard each other and encourage each other so that we don't fall away, we're going to have to see each other and talk to each other. And we're not real good at that right now. We need to do more of that. Regularly encourage one another. And then the last application is hold fast. Run to the finish line. Whether that finish line is your death or the return of Christ, run to it. Don't quit because Jesus is better. Don't quit even when it gets hard. Don't give up. Cling to him. Fix your eyes on him. Run to him. Don't let go of Jesus. It's the only hope you've got. And if you let go of him, you may be manifesting that you never really knew him in the first place. And if you let go of him, I think this text teaches, if we let go of him, if we turn away from him, we don't go to the promised land. That's heavy. It's big and it's real. And it fits with something Jesus taught when he told a story about a a guy that was scattering seeds. Do you remember this? He said one day a sower went out to sow and he was scattering seed and some of it fell on the road. Remember this? Some of that seed fell on the road and the birds came down and took it away. And some of it fell in the rocks. And the part that fell in the rocks, what did it do? Immediately it sprang to life. But when the sun came out, it withered and died because it didn't have any deep roots. And some of that seed that he was scattering fell amongst the thorns. And again, it immediately sprung to life. And everyone was excited and thought, oh, here we go. But then the thorns choked it out. And it withered and died and it didn't bear any fruit. But some of that seed fell on the good soil. And it grew and it grew and it grew and it produced a crop. It produced a harvest 30, 60, 100 times what it originally was. Jesus tells that story and then he says this. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. They will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those when they hear, they receive the word with joy. But they have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Hmm, That sounds familiar to Hebrews, doesn't it? 
He goes on and says, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they're choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Makes a good start. They make a great start, but they don't produce any fruit. But listen to this last bit. Verse 15 says, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. The author of Hebrews is not saying anything that Jesus hadn't already taught. He's saying that initial burst of life is no evidence of true life. The rocks spring up, but then it dies. The thorns spring up, but then it dies. But the ones who bear fruit hold it fast. Perseverance and bear fruit to the end. That's what we want to be. So consider yourself. Maybe you're here today and and you're the road. And you've heard it, but before you even responded to it, the devil took it away. You're not even interested in this. Maybe that's you. I don't know. I think more likely within the church context, there are lots of people who are rocky soil and thorny soil. If that's the case, don't just say, well, I had a great moment. One little little leaf stuck up there and going to the promised land. Haven't seen that leaf in 35 years, but it was there one day. Don't kid yourself. At the very least, listen, if you don't like that I'm being so strong with this warning, at the very least it causes a question, right? Even if it doesn't definitively say that you are lost and need Jesus, it at least raises the question, right, if that's the way your life looks. So let's at least raise that question in our own hearts today. And if... If, by God's grace, you realize you had a great start, but you're not walking with him anymore, that's the best thing that could happen today. Because now you have this opportunity to say, I need you, I want you, I follow you, and you start walking with him now. Start trusting him now. Start running and run all the way from here to the finish line. That can happen today. That can start today. Let's stand together and pray. God, we don't don't want to... We don't want to pass on your word today. We don't want to argue with your word today. We want to receive your word today. We want to heed the warnings. God, thank you for warning us about this. Thank you for telling us about the faithlessness, the unbelief of the wilderness generation. Thank you for telling us about them and warning us not to follow them. And God, I want to pray for my, my friends. Some of some of whom are in this room right now, my friends who made a good start, but for quite some time now, it's been clear that they are not trusting you. They are not living for you. God, I pray that you will bring to their hearts a holy discomfort and uneasiness, conviction, so that they will turn and trust in you and walk with you and run from here to the finish line in faithfulness with perseverance and endurance. God, I pray that you'll bring that to pass by your grace and for your glory. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who are in this room today who are running. They could see the finish line and they're running toward it and they're tired and they want to quit. They hurt. They don't have any more energy. God, I pray that you will meet with them, 
and encourage them. I pray that you'll rally the church around them to encourage them daily while it's still today so that we will not fall away. God, I pray that we will be invested in each other's lives. Help us to encourage one another to not lose heart, to not lose faith. And God, help us to examine our own hearts, to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. God, show us what evidence of faith looks like. Not just a profession, but a possession of faith. God, have your way. Have your way. Through your word, in our hearts, help us respond in obedience to it. Submission to it. For your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.